Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up? This is your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And Robert, are you going to make us tread into some unsolved mysteries today? Oh, yeah. We're going to get into some classic unsolved mysteries territory, at least to kick off this episode. Oh, boy. do dicka dicka do do dicka dicka doody. There you go. That takes me back. Back to the 80s and 90s, especially around 1990 itself, because that is the year that an episode of Unsolved Mysteries aired that touched on crop circles oh, in the United yeah. Kingdom. Yeah, I remember these. Yeah, because they weren't always just unsolved uh, murders and disappearances and Matthew McConaughey screaming in a uh, like a, a driveway somewhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, they they got increasingly into these um, these paranormal things, right? These paranormal topics. I don't know if it was just like the TV I watched when I was a kid, like for for whatever reason, whatever happened to be on in my house, or if this is what TV was like in the 90s. I remember 90s TV was just wall-to-wall paranormal, cryptids, conspiracies, <laughs> stuff like that. Was that like what every show was about or is that just what my parents were watching? Or I mean, it, for me, a lot of it was just – it was what was on and then it was what you, you gravitated towards. There were only so many channels and you watched TV at, at its uh, – you know, at its pace – 
And so uh, I I would, for whatever reason, tune in and watch Unsolved Mysteries or In Search Of or whatever mm-hmm. kind of, uh, you know, cryptid, uh, pseudoscientific yeah. show happened to be on. <laughs> but yeah, I remember uh, one of the things that I was really convinced of from television when I was a child, I must have been in second grade or something, and I was like, oh, definitely aliens are real. <laughs> That's absolutely one of my issues. And those crop circles, those are awesome, and they were definitely aliens. Yeah, the crop circles definitely were part of just the overall sort of unsolved mysteries argument for the existence of aliens, right? You had – it was almost like a, a holy trinity of UFO sightings, alien abduction uh, experiences, mm-hmm. and then those crop circles. Yeah. You had the physical proof, the uh, the experience, and just the sighting of things in the sky. It just It just felt like here's the complete argument. Yeah, exactly. So the crop circles were the one part of it where you didn't have to rely on somebody's eyewitness testimony. It was just like, here's the evidence. What else could have made these circles? Turns out maybe a lot of things could have, especially like people. But um, but some you look at some of the circles and you can see why people were convinced because I am quite impressed by the artistry of a good many crop circles. You go and like Google these images. In some cases, I'm like, why aren't these hoaxers just like artists? They, they, some of them are quite beautiful. Oh, yeah. I mean, if, for anyone who hasn't seen photos of crop circles, which I'll be surprised if you haven't, do a search, see these things. They, they are impressive in many cases. Uh, they, they begin popping up in the 1970s, mostly in the UK, and they had these just increasingly elaborate patterns. You know, they start off kind of simple and they just got more and more elaborate to the point where it becomes it, – becomes kind of difficult at times to look at it and think of just a, a few human hoaxers running around in the night. Now, to be perfectly clear, we should explain th- the exact physical reality of what a crop circle is. Generally, it's in a field, often mm-hmm. like a cereal, you know, like a grain, like wheat field or something like right. that, where there would be tall stalks of something of plants and that they get flattened in a pattern that's usually circular in nature and often increasingly complex as the years go on. Yeah, I have to also throw in, even though I don't recall if I if if you had crop circles showing up in cornfields. Uh, I think maybe, yeah. Yeah, maybe so. But I feel like there's also the the fact that uh, that, that you had children of the corn and it's <laughs> it's infinite sequels popping yeah. up around the same time. So there was this idea in especially like the zeitgeist of the VHS store going child that uh, large-scale agriculture is inc- is just inherently creepy. Yes. <laughs> well, there's a re- it showed up in the X-Files a lot. There'd oh, be yeah. like X-Files episodes where they stumble onto a big scary farm and something's happening there. There's like the, the farm where they had the bees, these genetically engineered bees or something. Okay. So you got genetically engineered bees. You got what uh, he who walks between the rows I think was the Lovecraftian entity and the original uh, children of the corn. And then you have these – complex, at times geometric patterns that are just carefully lined up out there uh, in the middle of a field. Now, I think the obvious implication, if you haven't delved into this literature, is that like spaceships are landing. (laughs) And for some reason, they always land where there is tall vegetation near civilization to be photographed. Uh, and, And another thing is that crop circles often don't look all that impressive if you're standing on the ground. But if you take a picture from up above, they look really cool. Right. Uh, But the idea is like a ship lands and it makes these patterns. Yeah, just kind of like the cookie cutter pattern of the ship. Uh, but but then there were other explanations as well. Well, it's maybe not the ship 
just landing, but it's some sort of alien communication or it's some sort of mystic earth energy such as orgone energy. Oh, boy. <laughs> um, or everything else under the sun, including big, Bigfoot. A whole organ. <laughs> yeah. What, Bigfoot? Bigfoot. He, he just occasionally morphs to have a big circular foot. <laughs> well, <laughs> you know, every night Bigfoot goes out there and just starts pushing down the uh, the wheat uh-huh. until he, he forms this complex geometric pattern. I don't know. We'll come back to that theory later uh, in this episode. <laughs> Um, but you had a whole whole organizations, a uh, whole publications popping up. I, I, I'd go even so far as to say you have sort of a, a system of paranormal paranormal belief springing up around these patterns. Mm-hmm. Now, as Carl Sagan points out in the Demon Haunted World, he spends a little time talking about crop circles. He says that at least some scientifically minded folks or folks with some degree of scientific training did present some theories that were still. A little fringy, but at least based more in in, in uh, observable reality. Yeah, uh, there were theories that there was some sort of strange whirlwind, like a columnar vortex or a ring vortex. Mm. Uh, there were also those that said, "Okay, but it's got to be ball lightning. Ball <laughs> lightning is probably involved." Yeah. I mean, obviously, I don't think crop circles are caused by aliens, but I think a lot of these other explanations are also not maybe not as unlikely as aliens, but pretty unlikely. Right. But again, these were impressive patterns and, uh, you know, they were elaborate, they were beautiful and uh, they sometimes seem to have been created in like mere two to three hour windows in the dark. Mm -hmm. And there would be additional accounts of of how say, oh, there were no footsteps seen, there were no flashlights seen, all of this adding to the mystery and and making it uh, seem, you know, increasingly unlikely that humans had anything to do with this at all. I don't know. I mean, I've already alluded to my theory, which I think is the Pretty much the the common theory that people would have is that these things are made by people who are creating them on purpose as hoaxes or art or whatever. I've never seen any crop circle as impressive and even beautiful as some of them are that doesn't look like something that could have been created by some people with a plan and some rope and a board. Exactly. Now, I'll come back to Bigfoot at the very end of this episode. But uh, no, indeed, um, every crop circle that has ever been reported is entirely consistent with human activity, with human causation, and human hoax making. Mm-hmm. There's not a single crop circle that has ever been uh, observed where where experts have weighed in and said, yep, there's no way humans could have done that. No, <laughs> in, in every case, humans could have been, done it and humans did do it. Um, as delightful and fun as most of the fringe explanations are, they're completely unnecessary when we, the human hoaxers, are right here. In particular, two human hoaxers who who made the headlines. In 1991, Doug Bauer and Dave Chorley announced that they had been making crop circles for 15 years. Whoa. These were uh, two Southampton residents in the UK, and uh, they said that they used uh, first a heavy steel security bar that you would like, you know, bar a door with. Mm-hmm. Uh, they used that. Then they moved on to planks and ropes, and they were – and then they would use these to just push down – the, uh, uh, the the wheat pushed down whatever the cereal uh, crop happened to be. Mm-hmm. And they were inspired by UFO stories and they started doing it just for fun and they became progressively better at it as time uh, went on, uh, more daring in their execution. And as people began to follow their, their, their works, their exploits, uh, they followed the literature as well and would even mess with them by intentionally throwing off interpretations. <laughs> uh, like somebody might be commenting on, oh, well, there's this clockwise pattern and then so the next one they would do a counterclockwise pattern uh-huh. just to mess with them. Like they really got into the uh, the spirit of the thing. And then you have copycat crop circles popping up uh, in the UK and beyond the UK. It begins to take on a life of its own. 
But then eventually by 1991, uh, they grew they grew tired of the hoax. They were getting older. I think they were in their 60s at this point. They realized they couldn't carry it on forever. Um, and there was just just less satisfying to do so. They were having uh, there was also some some difficulties in um, in dealing with copycats because there was some there's some pretty shoddy work out there. Right. And they they apparently started uh, trying to incorporate like a DD because uh, they were you know uh, Doug and Dave uh, making sure that they kind of signed their work, uh, <laughs> and this was of course interpreted by uh, by by some of the uh, quote unquote experts as being some other kind of alien glyph. Doomsday. Or yeah, <laughs> doomsday. Um, but uh, so yeah, they came clean. Uh, less elaborate crop circles continued, of course, and as Sagan pointed out uh, in the Demon Haunted World, quote, as always, the confession of the hoax is greatly overshadowed by the sustained initial ex- excitement. Many have heard of the pictograms in cereal grains and their alleged UFO connection, but draw a blank when the names of Bauer and Chorley or the very idea that the whole business may, may be a hoax are raised. I mean, this is a problem that goes beyond just hoaxes, right? This mm-hmm. is a problem of any time there's an interesting story that turns out to be untrue. And I would say, unfortunately, as interesting as the real world is, you do have to consider the fact that, like, the more shocking or more attention-grabbing a story is, mm-hmm. probably the more suspicious you should be of it, right? Because that, you know, there's a natural selection effect on what kinds of stories get picked up and repeated and shared on media and on the internet these days and all that. They just kind of naturally things that are very attention-catching bubble to the surface and they have a better shot at getting that kind of reach as a story than something that is maybe more more likely to be true, but less attention grabbing. And this is true of like scientific studies. I I feel like the ones that are most likely to later get retracted are the ones that are like, wow, that's a really weird result. And then the retraction doesn't usually get noticed nearly as much, right? Because that's just not that interesting. Right. And it'll be like either the initial uh, flawed study or you know, or, or it'll be some story about a, a flawed study that'll continue to make the rounds on social media. Yeah. And then somebody else has to say, actually, you know, this was retracted later on or this was disproven. Well, then you always got to worry if by bringing up the story again to mention the fact that it's not actually true, you're just spreading the original false story, even if you make clear that it's not true. Yeah. I mean, I'm engaging with the post, right? And that's probably be, be it's probably being rewarded in the almighty algorithm anyway. Yeah. And the illusory truth effect, which we did a couple of episodes mm-hmm. about. It if people have been exposed to an idea, even in the context of it being explained as being untrue, they're more likely to believe it later. Right. And if you're really invested in the idea of crop circles being, uh, you know, communications from essentially the gods, right, mm-hmm. uh, then you probably have some spin on it, right? Well, these two guys came forward and claimed responsibility for some of them. Or maybe, you know, some shadowy organization, the Illuminati paid these guys to come forward to right. take the heat. <laughs> Uh, off of everybody, but so the aliens—they were fall guys, right? Yeah. Well, as fascinating as crop circles are, they are not the only case in the world where we can find strange geometrical designs out in nature and wonder what caused it. So, with that little tease, maybe we should take a quick break and then come back to discuss another realm of strange geometric patterns out there to be found. Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. Rob, as the uh, the local host with allergies here, they sent you some of their nasal spray to treat your allergies. What was your experience like? Yeah, that's right. I always wrestle with the pollen a bit when it rolls in during the spring. So they sent me the little uh, nasal spray. I tried out the product and yeah, it sure did help me get on top of my symptoms for the day. And it's so fast acting. Uh, it was already kicking in before I left the house. 
Astapro is a first-of-its-kind nasal allergy spray. It's the fastest 24-hour over-the-counter allergy spray. It starts working in 30 minutes, while other allergy sprays take hours. Astapro is the first and only 24-hour steroid-free allergy spray. Astapro delivers full prescription-strength indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny and itchy nose, and sneezing. Get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to AstaproAllergy.com for a discount so you can get Astapro and go today. A-S-T-E-P-R-O Allergy.com. Astapro and go. Use this directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There's still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. If you haven't heard of Visible, now you have. They're the wireless carrier that's making wireless visible. It's in the name. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. Having a one-line plan means you only need you to save. No estranged roommates, exes, cousins twice removed, or AI-powered humanoid robots needed. And because $25 a month really means $25 a month, you can call, text, stream, whatever, as much as you want without worrying about getting dinged at the end of the month. No hidden fees, no surprises. No, really. It's like the old saying goes, you can't judge a book by its cover, but you can judge a company by its name. So spread the word. Tell all your friends there's a wireless company out there with transparency in their name, and they're called Visible. Start saving on wireless today at Visible.com. 
Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. And we're back. All right. So today we're not talking about mysterious circles here uh, in the surface realm. Uh, we're talking about circles in the deep where humans oh. enjoy far less freedom to rework the landscape with their their hoaxes and their ingenuity uh, and also far less uh, uh, ability to observe these strange patterns. Circles in the deep. Unsolved mysteries, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, yes. Uh, so, but in for a while, this was an unsolved mystery. Uh, but here's the thing. Sometimes a mystery presents itself and the answer is even more amazing than anything we could possibly dream up about uh, underwater aliens or what have you. Yeah, I think that can be true because often even when we discover that the answer to something isn't actually aliens, which of course discovering aliens would be fascinating, discovering that the answer is something else is more likely to tell us something about the nature of Earth life, which is very relevant to us. It matters on this planet. Uh, so, yeah, yeah, I, I love a good deep sea mystery, right? I mean, of course, uh, like a mysterious shipwreck, that's that's great. But you know where the ships came from, right? That's right. not a mystery. What about other things, uh, mysterious sort of uh, just uh, shapely anomalies in the deep? Oh, yeah. I mean, there are a number of different uh, mysteries that have popped up. Uh, sometimes they're they're a bit vague, you know, like it's just uh, we're not sure to what extent the physical reality on the seafloor matches our readings or, you know, sonar uh, readings, what, what, what have you. But uh, but but sometimes those mysteries uh, um, are related to, to what seem to be uh, unnatural patterns or formations. For instance, there's Japan's uh, uh, Yonaguni Monument or there's the Gulf of uh, combat discovery. And there are a whole list of others out there with varying degrees of verification. Though, of course, in, their, in the extreme interpretation, they're all potentially Atlantis. They're all Atlantis, yeah. yeah that's, <laughs> you know, there, were, there was more than one Atlantis and they all got swallowed by the sea. That's how it worked. But, but a lot of these, uh, you know, that I'm alluding to, and we could certainly come back at some point and do a, a more in-depth uh, look at them. But a lot of times it's something like, oh, well, this is, these are some curious uh, right angles uh, appearing on the seafloor or look at these strange spherical formations, these circles, something that maybe looks a little Stonehenge-esque or looks like it could be the remains of an ancient city or the, the remnants of something that might have been man-made. Yeah, there's nothing more enticing than coming across geometric patterns that seem out of shape in the place you find them. That's why some like ice formations, you know, sometimes mm -hmm. ice crystals can form in ways that look as if they've been designed artificially. Things like snow rollers and the oh, like, yeah. you know, it, 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 that's always cool. And you wonder, like, did something make this? How did this come about? And so today we're going to be focusing on an underwater geometric anomaly like this. So to get geographically oriented, we're going to travel to Japan, okay? So we're going to an island called Amami Oshima off the southern coast of mainland Japan, north of Okinawa. It's a volcanic island with a humid subtropical climate surrounded by coral reefs and home to plenty of interesting marine life. I know there's some like whale watching stuff around mm -hmm. there. I think I've also read that it's like the northernmost point of the Dugong territory around there. And also, for some reason, it seems like a lot of famous singers come from this island. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> or at least they're listed on its Wikipedia page. I'm not sure why, why all the singers, but uh, maybe somebody has a clue there. But back in 1995, divers off the coast of this island found a strange anomaly in the seabed. Uh, so to picture it, imagine you're swimming along. 
over the surface of the seafloor, and you got your scuba tank and all that, and you come across a strange pattern of dunes in the sandy sea bottom. Now, they're not just random drifts of sand like you might expect to see created by the patterns of moving water. These elevations and depressions in the sand actually form a complex, striking geometric shape. They're arranged in a giant circle, about two meters in diameter, so that's like six or seven feet wide. And it's not just a circle. It's circles within circles with radial trenches, usually in different layers, dug into the seabed and evenly spaced trenches for these outer rings with radial trenches that extend out. And then towards the center with this complex maze-like pattern of shallow trenches and veins inside an innermost disk. And if I may voice my opinion, it is creepy looking. It's, <laughs> it's a real suggestion of like forbidden geometries and coded messages from the Hadean angels of the deep. <laughs> Isn't it? I mean, it, oh, it, absolutely. It yeah, it has the the look of say an a, an eye opening on the sea floor. Yeah, but with like a maze in the pupil of the eye. Yeah, and bones in the iris of the eye. Yeah, if we if we were to uh, do yet another uh, stuff to blow your mind spinoff just for underwater stuff, I would say let's do this is the logo. Oh, it should yeah. absolutely be. Oh yeah. Yeah, there are no plans to do that by the way. But if we did that, this would totally be it. I'd say that would be a good choice. Now, these circular patterns in the ocean floor have been known by several names. Sometimes they're called mystery circles. Sometimes they've been called underwater crop circles. <laughs> I guess that makes sense if your crop is sand. Uh, though funny enough, I think there are actually like sand harvesting operations all around the world that I think can sometimes be quite destructive. But these are not great names. We can do better. No. Than this. Okay, I propose. What about Poseidograms? Ooh, that's nice. That's nice. It it it, uh, it conveys a sense of communication. Yeah, and of course, uh, a sea god. And this thing really does, in many ways, look like a symbol or deliberate work of art or communication. Uh, I've got a couple here. How about? Uh, Protean oscillations of the Tritonian sands. Okay, that's if you're if you're not into the whole brevity thing, but mm -hmm. that's a good one. Or another one I have is Cyrenian spirographs. Yes, I feel you on that one. Oh my god, it is like a spirograph, like those uh, things. Yeah, what yeah. is that toy called? Like is it called? A I think okay. it's just a spirograph, but we don't have one in our household, so, uh, so I, I, I'm not completely sure. I never had one as a kid either. The inner disk especially really – because you've got the, these like radial trenches going out towards the outer edges. Mm -hmm. But this inner disk especially with the more – the weirder, more maze-like structure, it reminds me of a spirograph sort of or kind of like – you know those Celtic knot designs? Oh, yeah. I see people – I don't really know anything about what those are. I think they have some kind of – cultural significance. I don't know anything about them, but the, it looks kind of like that. Millhouse would have loved this. Exactly. Millhouse? Yeah, didn't, wasn't Millhouse a spirograph uh, enthusiast? Oh, I don't know. Oh, I seem to recall that he was. Uh, <laughs> well, if he goes down scuba diving off the coast of this island, everything may be coming up Millhouse because he might be <laughs> likely to come across one of these. But the question is, what causes them? Now, their sighting in 1995 wasn't the only time they've ever appeared. Other divers have apparently spotted them across the years, no doubt always making people wonder about the messages from the alien deep or elaborate unannounced uh, like underwater art projects. And to go back to some of those crop circle theories, it's easy to imagine that someone might have seen these and contemplated some sort of strange vortices in the deep being behind it, you know, some sort of uh, uh, you know, vortex uh, yeah. swirling up the sand and leaving this 
this pattern. You can maybe imagine something like that. It feels almost too deliberate or designed to be that mm-hmm. way. But, you know, some sometimes things in nature can be deceiving. Like we were just talking about, like some formations of ice look really like they were designed, but they're not. They just grow that way. I mean, you look at a snowflake, right? I mean— <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, we're all kind of over it. We've all seen snowflakes. We know the complexity and, and beauty of of the crystals. Uh, but uh, if you, if you take a step back and you sort of uh, you know clean the slate and look at it, I mean this is absolutely amazing to behold. It looks like something that has been designed. And all that just tells you that our intuitions about what looks natural and what looks designed are sometimes sort of on track, but they can be way off base too. Right. Now, if we consider the idea of design for these things, like if they were some sort of underwater art project, like the crop circles, if they'd been made by hoaxers or or artists, people who wanted others to come see what they had done— I would have wondered how would a human expect them to be discovered with them being down on the seabed and with them being so ephemeral in nature? I mean, these are not monuments made of bronze. They're not even crop circles with flattened grass and plants. They're they're patterns carved in underwater sand. So they're liable to be washed away by the whimsical, you know, mechanics of water and marine life in almost no time, in probably a matter of days. Who would make such a thing? Well, you might say Doug and Dave from earlier. <laughs> I mean, in a weird way, the the time frame would match up. Ninety one, they're done with crop circles. Ninety, uh, what ninety five? Yeah. Suddenly, there are circles on the bottom of the sea. Maybe they learned they got their scuba licenses and they set out for Japan. Uh, no, that's not what happened. But, uh, <laughs> but you know, if we were to compare this to to human art, uh, I would say the nearest examples I can think of are, are sand castles or the mandalas of colored sand and Tibetan customs. Oh yeah. Except. Uh, you know, as we alluded to earlier, uh, they're they're not only fleeting, but they're in places of extremely limited human traffic. Yeah, you would only expect like scuba divers to find these, right? And then, uh, you know, they're, 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 they they may be in areas where there just aren't that many. Well, there aren't that many scuba divers, just period, compared to the rest of the human population. Mm-hmm. Uh, certainly compared to you know other creatures living in the sea, and uh, so the, most of them would, might just go unobserved. It, it would be like if I decided to build a tiny Stonehenge out of barbecue pork ribs. <laughs> In the middle of a rainforest, you know, like <laughs> yeah. nobody's going to see it and it's going to be gone, you know, probably almost immediately. Uh, some ambitious artist out there is taking note though, Robert. <laughs> you know, actually, I can see that being a great art project if you just leave a camera filming it, like yes. uh, put put food out in the rainforest of various kinds and just time lapse, watch what happens to it. That is art. Well, there we, we went into this a little bit in our old episode, uh, Unfinished, on various unfinished pieces of art and mm-hmm. art that is intentionally unfinished. And I think we talked a little bit about art that is intentionally fleeting too. Mm-hmm. I mean, various sculptures that have been made out of something that will decay um, or certainly the self-shredding uh, piece of art that uh, Banksy recently oh, yeah. uh, <laughs> debuted. Uh, you know, that sort that of That was pretty good. <laughs> yeah, that was pretty good. I, I did like that. Uh, so it's not to say that these patterns are like – beyond the pale when it comes to to human art. Like, yeah, humans could conceivably do this. We are weird creatures. Uh, but the, the actual explanation is even weirder. So we're going to take one more break. And when we come back, we'll see if you manage to guess. So you have one more ad break to try and guess what is causing the pattern. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. 
Remember when you first saw the potential, and then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed a 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There's still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. If you haven't heard of Visible, now you have. They're the wireless carrier that's making wireless visible. It's in the name. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. Having a one-line plan means you only need you to save. No estranged roommates, exes, cousins twice removed, or AI-powered humanoid robots needed. And because $25 a month really means $25 a month, you can call, text, stream, whatever, as much as you want without worrying about getting dinged at the end of the month. No hidden fees, no surprises. No, really. It's like the old saying goes, you can't judge a book by its cover, but you can judge a company by its name. So spread the word. Tell all your friends there's a wireless company out there with transparency in their name, and they're called Visible. Start saving on wireless today at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road, the steeper the better because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones so we'll never lose touch with civilization and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend 
or do something a little more epic and conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. All right, we're back. Okay, so now we're going to get to the real explanation for the underwater crop circles. So around 2011-2012, A team of researchers named Hiroshi Kawase, Yoji Okata, who uh, also I think is an underwater photographer who documented these these patterns, and Kimiyaki Ito, they finally performed research to confirm the origin and function of these underwater mystery circles. The results were published in 2013 in Nature Scientific Reports, and here's what we found out. The real culprit – is fish sex. Ah, fish sex. Always weirder than aliens. You're right, and we're never going to run out of amazement for fish sex. We talked about this with Mara Hart. Like, marine marine reproduction is just like, it's the, what's what's the magical thing? The endless bag, you just reach in and there's all... The bag of holding, I guess. Yeah, Yeah. or the magic well. Yeah, you you just never run out. There's always more interesting, weird mating and reproduction practices under the waves. Now, certainly finish listening to this episode before you go in search of footage, but there is some fabulous footage of what we're going to be talking about here. And our devoted Attenborough viewers probably guessed from the very beginning, Mm -hmm. because the fifth episode of the six-part TV series Life Stories uh, from a couple years back has some amazing footage of these circles and uh, of and the fish sex responsible for it. If you're a Netflix viewer in the United States, then you have access to this uh, show as of this recording. Did that come out in 2014? Yes, I believe it did. Yeah, I actually went and watched this, especially after you recommended it. And it is wonderful to watch. It's also kind of funny. Yeah, but be just beautifully filmed too. And they yeah. do a great job uh, revealing what has been created in the sand. It's a BBC nature documentary. Yeah. You know? They know how to do it. They do. Uh, so specifically, these forbidden geometries were caused by the mating rituals of a genus of puffer fishes called torquigener, which in Latin I believe means something about making circles. I think like the Latin word torquis can be translated as necklace, uh, but I'm not fully sure about that translation. I think there's something going on there. Anyway, specifically, the species in question is now called Torquigener albomaculosus, or the white-spotted pufferfish. And Robert, I've included an image for us to look at here. I'm sorry you at home can't see it, but we'll do our best to describe it. He's a small but magnificent little specimen. Yeah, if you're looking up this episode uh, at StuffToBlowYourMind.com, I will include uh, an image of these fish uh, below the fold, you know, mm-hmm. so so as not to spoil it for anybody. But you, you might look at them, and you, you're going to instantly recognize that this is some kind of, of puffer fish. You know, they that the distinctive kind of head shape and face. And right. sometimes it is very much like a face. If you've ever been to an aquarium and you've uh, gone to take a picture of them with your smartphone, sometimes it will do the like the little facial identification square. Over their little face. Oh yeah, yeah. Or if you, and then if like you put, it thinks it's a person. Yeah, they were like, "Oh, I see the face. Let's uh, let's frame this up." And then when you go to put that photo on social media, it may say, "Hey, don't you want to tag the toadfish here?" Yeah, uh, or auto tag. Isn't this your friend Jeffrey? Yeah, this is this is probably Jeffrey or, <laughs> or Ron or one of these other people. Um, now, one of the things though is when you look at this particular puffer fish, you might think, "Well, this this guy's not that flashy." Uh, now, now, to be fair, he's still a beautiful fish. All the members of the family, uh, Tetrio, Dante, De Rio, are beautiful. Because we're talking about pufferfish, puffers, balloonfish, blowfish, blowies, bubblefish, 
globefish, swellfish, toadfish, toadies, honey toads, sugar toads, and the mighty sea squab. <laughs> Um, now, th- they're related to porcupine fish, but they're not – but the porcupine fish are not actually part of this family. Uh-huh. Still, they're, they're all amazing creatures. So many of them are toxic. Uh, they can move their eyes independently. Uh, some can actually alter their patterns for camouflage purposes. And puffers can, of course, inflate their bodies with water or even air if they're out of the water to form an imposing – Beep, to take on the form of an imposing spiked sphere, you know, kind of like the head of a medieval mace. Uh-huh. And is this the reason that they often look kind of strangely shaped to begin with? Yeah, like sometimes they have a very boxy appearance, mm-hmm. right? But anyway, back, back to T. albomaculosis here. He's beautiful, but unlike the rest of the family, he's, he's, he's not that flashy. Mm-hmm. He doesn't have amazing glittering colorization. He doesn't have a bunch of cool spines. So when it comes to catching the eyes of a potential mate, he has other tools up his sleeve. Exactly right. And that's where this underwater sign in the sand comes in. If the male wants to mate... He carves the sacred sign. Ah, it's like a like like a like a hobo glyph for for breeding. <laughs> yeah, it's not uh, except instead of like good beans here or whatever, it's like good mating here. <laughs> uh, so we've heard of males in the animal kingdom before who advertise mating fitness with big tails or loud songs or bright colors, but this this building of what looks like geometric art in the sand of the seabed is a strange and fascinating form of mate attraction. Now, of course, these pufferfish would not be the only animals that build a physical structure to attract mates. Uh, One example that immediately comes to mind that we've talked about on the show before is bowerbirds, where males build these elaborate nests to attract females for mating. Yeah, and if you want to talk about... um Nature documentary superstars, the, the yeah. bowerbirds, have definitely enjoyed a lot of screen time. Uh, you know, they, they craft these these structures that entail form and colors that, you know, that are purely statements of fitness. They're not building structures to live in. Mm-hmm. It's all about uh, communicating with a potential mate. Another interesting thing about bowerbirds, though, that, that sometimes I forget if I'm watching like one documentary covering one species and, and, and not another species, is that some species of bowerbird are rather plain looking, kind of fitting the, um, uh, you know, the, 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 uh, the, the form we've been talking about here, a creature that is not flashy but does something flashy. Mm-hmm. And yet at the same time, you have creatures like the flame bowerbird, Whoa. which has, has – Kind of the same color scheme as those bright orange uh, dismemberment-prone fireys in Jim Henson's Labyrinth. <laughs> Do you remember those creatures? Uh, he looks to me like a Days of Thunder sunset. He does. Yeah, he looks. He's he's actually he's brighter than the fireys. He's brighter, just about brighter than any sunset I've seen. He looks as bright as like the most obnoxious slushy you might purchase uh-huh. at, a, oh, at yeah. a roadside slushy stand. He's, he's something he's, from that flip book they got at the tables at Chili's. You know? Yeah, exactly. So he's he's this is all already a really bright specimen. So it's almost kind of amazing to realize that, that he's, go, he's going the step beyond. He's going to create this, this impressive bower to bring in a mate. Now, one interesting thing about bowerbirds is that, you know, you see this contrast between like flashy colors that they would show off, which are often a sign of like mate fitness that mm-hmm. males can use to sig- signal attractiveness to females, but also building these nests is that I, I've read that there is sometimes a trade-off there, like the flashier looking bowerbirds mm-hmm. – 
build less elaborate nests. And the ones that look, uh, le- you know, more drab and have less colors and stuff build more elaborate nests, pres- presumably as like a compensation mechanism. It's like, hey, I don't have all the, you know, the flashy outfits, but I can build a really good house. Well, that's reassuring. It feels like there's still some balance to the universe. Now, another bird that I really love for uh, for its nest building capabilities as an advertisement of mate fitness is known as the brush turkey. Oh, yes. Ale- <laughs> Alec Tour Lethami. And these these are pretty funny, I think. They're one of my favorites. Um, so they're a species of megapode, which is a type of bird. Of course, megapode means huge foot. And the males of this species build these gigantic mounds of rotting compost, <laughs> often as big as a car, like 1 to 1.5 meters high and 4 meters wide, out of soil and dead plant matter and just rotting stuff. And these are nests they use to attract females, and they're not merely an aesthetic statement like, you know, why wouldn't you like to come hang out on my gigantic pile of rot? <laughs> the The decomposition of dead stuff that's taking place in the mound actually generates a lot of heat, which helps keep the female's eggs warm when she lays them on the mound she's chosen. And they uh, – apparently the the – Brush turkeys even reportedly regulate the temperature of the mound by adding or removing plant matter if the temperature isn't just right. Huh, that's brilliant. But as you can imagine, building like a car-sized mound of rotting plant matter is not an easy task. You know, so a turkey does this, it might take him a month to do it, and it can basically like wear him to death to do this thing. So you got to think about the real stakes that are taking place in nature here. Just building this big compost heap to mate in, this is a this is a serious investment that could be thought of as like a life or death proposition. And this brings us back to the white spotted puffer fish. Oh yeah. What what are its reasons? Right, like what? It's 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 making an investment here. Uh, what sort of investment? Yeah, exactly. When you look at these strange ephemeral carvings in the loose sediment of the seafloor, what is the male pufferfish doing, and why is the female attracted? And also, I mean, consider the amazing disparity in scale with the amount of work we're talking about here. Because these patterns that are carved in the sand are up to two meters across, which is like six or seven feet. Meanwhile, this fish that makes them is only like 10 to 12 centimeters long, maybe about five inches. So to get a sense of the scale of this and the work involved, I want to quote uh, our friend and, and recent guest on the show, the marine biologist Mara Hart from her book Sex in the Sea. She writes, quote, Next time you visit a beach, imagine building a giant sand wheel with radiating spokes and troughs that stretch over 100 feet across. Now imagine carving the whole thing by scooting around on your bottom, <laughs> which is basically what this male fish does. This tiny fish that could fit in the palm of your hand builds this giant elaborate artwork by rubbing its body and fins along on the sand, vibrating its pectoral fins, anal fin, and tail fin, and pushing its ventral surface, which means its underbelly, into the sand to sort of push it down and forward. And after he's carved these peaks and valleys into the sand, he also further decorates the carving with bits of material he finds like coral and pieces of seashell that go up on the uh, – along these radial lines. Apparently, this usually takes about a week of constant work to make the design like this. And as we've been saying, it's like it's totally ephemeral. This nest that it builds in the sand will soon be churned away by the sea. So why all this work? 
Now, one idea is that this elaborate design helps the female find the male pufferfish, right? Because when you make a design like this, it creates an unnatural pattern of contrast in bright and dark patches uh, along the seafloor. And the sand attracts the female's eye on the otherwise monotonous bottom of the ocean. Right. It's, it's like it's a roadside billboard advertising, hey – here I am. Right. Now, this might be part of the explanation. It probably does help her see him, but it's clearly not all of it. So I want to refer to a study by the authors I mentioned earlier by uh, uh, Kawasi, Okada, and Ito. And this is their study from 2013 in Scientific Reports, Role of Huge Geometric Circular Structures in the Reproduction of a Marine Pufferfish. So the researchers here hypothesize based on their observations that something about the quality of the nest plays a role in mate choice. Like you build a better nest and you get a better chance at mating, but they had not identified what all of those qualities of an attractive nest were. Though here's one possible element that comes out of their research. They found that the creation of this structure is probably not just aesthetic. It's not just that the female likes the way it looks. It actually does something. And what they found is that the process of digging the radial trenches, when the male goes through and digs these radial lines that go out to make the outer circle of the pattern, it tends to stir up fine-grained particles of sand and helps push them toward the center of the circle so that the finished product of this uh, symbol nest should contain very fine sediment at its hub. Now, if a female begins to approach the nest, the male will usually fan the central disk of this fine sediment to churn up a cloud in the water, and then he'll swim back and forth through the cloud that he's churned up. And if the female likes what she sees, she will enter the nest area and travel to the center where these shallow designs and the finest sand particles are. And if she does this, the male will usually dart back and forth a few times around the nest in, in a display of some kind. I remember in, in the section in her book, uh, Maura Hart mentions that it's hard not to think of him being like, did you see this part? I made this and this too. <laughs> I mean, he looks kind of proud. Yeah, I mean, they, they, they're, they're cute little fish. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're cute little fish. It's very difficult not to anthropomorphize them. Again, you're coming back to that, that their distinctive uh, sort of head and face shape. Yeah, if the facial recognition algorithm in the computer has a hard time telling them from human, who knows what, you know. Yeah. We are very quick to look at an animal and, and see its behavior and think of it as human behavior. But anyway, if, if she is enticed, she, she goes to the center with the fine sand and they spawn. She lays her eggs among this fine-grained sediment and then she leaves and then the male stays behind with the nest to guard the fertilized eggs. In a kind of beautiful twist here, he stays there to guard the eggs as the nest essentially dissolves and deteriorates around him. Yeah, all the art he has created is, uh, is, is steadily eroded. Now, uh, I, I should point out about the spawning. Uh, that they'll they'll do this thing where the male will uh, will will bite the female's cheek. Yes, uh, I've seen some some pictures of this. In fact, I'll probably include a picture of this at the the bottom of the page on, at uh, stufftoblowyourmind dot com. Uh, but it, it's kind of endearing because he's like, oh, he's giving her a love nibble. It's like a little kiss on the cheek. Uh -huh. Now another point in all of this is that uh, some scientists think the ridges and grooves of the circle serve to minimize ocean current at the center of the nest. Uh -huh. And this would protect the actual nest site from turbulence that might disturb the eggs and expose them to predators. So the turbulent, very turbulence that's eroding and destroying the circular artwork, it's kind of taking a bullet 
for that central nesting area. Yeah, and I think also, if I understand correctly, that 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 protection from the ocean currents in the center also helps keep the fine grain sand particles mm. there that would normally be more easily washed away by the water currents. Now, here's a really interesting thing about these puffer fish. After they hatch and and the young disappear, the male does not reuse the nest. Instead, he goes on to build a totally new nest for the next mating cycle, which is a tremendous amount of work. Remember, mm-hmm. again, like try to think about building a like 100-foot-wide uh, symbol in the beach sand by dragging your butt along. Like it's just like why go through all that work? While the old nest just continually gets washed away into nothing, like we, we don't I think often appreciate how much of a risky investment building big nests is for some animals in the wild. Like humans, you know, we go to the gym to intentionally burn calories in productless labor. Mm -hmm. Uh, For a fish living on the edge of a wild energy economy, the amount of work it takes to build an elaborate nest could potentially kill you. It's kind of it's kind of like if what if humans, in order to mate, each of us had to make a concept album. Like it was just required. Like you weren't even going to have a shot unless you uh-huh. you fully wrote and produced and like brought in sessions musicians and and uh, commissioned artwork and just had the full package. And that was your communication to potential mates in the world. You might go bankrupt during the process. You might get terrible reviews. Here's uh, destroy my, friendship. This is my prog rock concept album about the Silmarillion. <laughs> exactly. Truly, it is the only way to stand out. That's right. Reproductive fitness. Uh, exemplified there. <laughs> but anyway, yeah, so with this question for the puffer fish, like why make the rock opera album about the Silmarillion new each time? Why not just like sort of like touch up the last concept album you made? Yeah, kind of do like everybody, uh, most acts do, right? Just uh-huh. do a slightly retweaking of what came before. Yeah. Just do the sequel. <laughs> And the authors suggest that what's going on here is probably that the process of mating and then what's happening while, you know, the eggs are there waiting to hatch, it depletes the nest of these fine-grained sand particles, mm. which are somehow crucial for the female's eggs. That would make sense. He has engineered this local environment, and uh, and, and now he needs to re-engineer another. It's kind of it, – it's like he's cut down the forest, built the love hut. The love hut is gone. Now he needs to find a new virgin forest to uh, to to uh, to recreate in in his image. Yeah. Now another study I just looked at very quickly uh, that I thought was kind of interesting was also in Scientific Reports. It was last year in 2018 by Mizuchi Kawase Shin Iwai and Kondo, and this was called "Simple Rules for Construction of a Geometric Nest Structure by Pufferfish." This answers the question: Okay, something must be happening in the fish's brain to tell it how to build this underwater, you know, Poseidogram, right? Mm-hmm. So what's happening? And the study observed and formalized rules for the creation of the nest sites, which it turned out are actually uh, a pretty simple algorithm that they were able to recreate with a computer program. This kind of reminds me of how we discussed in our episode about spiders building webs, how a really relatively simple list of rules can lead to beautiful and haunting designs in nature. Like the algorithm itself for the creation of a structure by an animal doesn't have to be complex to create an emergently complex final structure that that looks very impressive to us. Yeah, I mean, I imagine a lot of it comes down to repetition. I mean, that's what we're seeing. We're seeing patterns. We're seeing pattern 
patterns in the sand, in the crops, what have you. But when you think about the attractiveness of patterns like this, say, what does the female see when she makes the choice? You know, she's, she looks at one nest versus another nest and goes to one instead of the other or simply goes toward one but is not attracted enough to go mm-hmm. to, uh, you know, another one she comes across. I, I think about the, these questions like humans show broad preferences for certain kinds of abstract geometrical shapes and figures over others. For example, studies show that we broadly prefer curved and symmetrical shapes over sharp angled and asymmetrical shapes. And sometimes I wonder – like I, I don't know the answer to this, but I wonder how deep do these preferences go? Is it possible that animals with even you know much simpler nervous systems like fish, for instance, also have similar preferences in in abstract geometric shapes, not just that I, you know, have an avoidance behavior when I see something that resembles a predator versus I have an approach behavior when I see something that resembles a mating opportunity or food. Do, Do they have more generalized, like just geometric preferences rooted in the same kind of deep elements that we have, like in our shared evolutionary history? Yeah, I mean, I can't come, can't help but come back to the fact that when we look at these designs that these pufferfish have created, like they are alluring to us. They captivate our imagination. Yes. Is that a coincidence? Well, now, that, that's always a tricky question when you start dealing with uh, weird circles. <laughs> <laughs> you know, if, if, you don't, you know, it, 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 maybe it is a coincidence. You, you don't mm-hmm. want to uh, go too far down the road of saying, oh, it's not a coincidence. It is intended. Uh, it is part of the grand design. No, this I, is the, These are the aliens speaking to me. You're misinterpreting me, Robert. <laughs> I, I do not mean like that. I don't mean designed. I mean like is, so, is some deep trigger in our brain that makes us like these rounded shapes with the maze-like patterns and the radial designs that's highly symmetrical – do we basically have uh, uh, an approach-type reaction in the brain? You know, it's the basis of our general favorability ideas. An approach-type reaction in the brain the same way that a, a female pufferfish would. Is there a similar mechanism underlying it in the two brains that could even have something to do with shared ancestry? Or is it just a coincidence that, you know, a pufferfish likes this design and we also like this design? I'm, I'm sure it could be a coincidence. I, I just wonder. Yeah, I mean, well, you know, undoubtedly there have been studies that have shown that the humans have a preference for, say, our ar- uh, architectural designs that appear more like nature, that have more mm-hmm. natural shapes and yes. maybe don't look like giant boxes that have fallen out of the sky. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I, I feel like you just always have to wonder about the, the what what's causing these types of attractions in other animals. You know, uh, Thomas Nagel famously wrote about, you know, you can't understand what it's like to be a bat. Yeah. Um, but I wonder, or maybe in some ways you can understand what it's like to be a pufferfish. You can't fully understand it, but you might have some of the same drives that exist for, you know, hundreds of millions of years. Well, then others would say that there is no what it is to be a pufferfish, right? I mean, yeah. it's just the, the pufferfish as a, is a, is a state is something that we can try and put our minds into, but it's it's ultimately – and it's, as if it's, it's kind of like trying to, to, to grab the sand pattern, right? Oh, you're backing me into a corner of uh, making me believe that you are just producing words that pretend they came from a mind. <laughs> well, you know, there's that uh, that old uh, philosophical argument. Uh, if uh, if you've never wondered what it's like to be a puffer fish, then congratulations, you are a puffer fish. No, I just made that one up. <laughs> and if you've never wondered what it's like to be a radial trench in a puffer fish nest, you know what it's like is just anal fin all over you. <laughs> 
All right. Well, we're going to close it out right there. We've, we've solved the mystery, or we didn't solve the mystery. Um, marine biologists solved the mystery. Uh, but we have uh, presented the mystery and presented the solution in this podcast. Now, uh, our question for everyone out there is, hey, would you like more episodes about undersea mysteries? We could do that. There's There are plenty out there. Maybe we could come back and talk about some of these uh, alleged uh, – underwater ruins or strange structures and forms that have been detected and what some of the more plausible explanations are uh, that don't involve Atlantis. Oh, Robert, you just made me think that even though Atlantis is a false trail, the whole phenomenon of supposedly disappearing islands is something interesting we could visit in the future. Oh, yeah. I'm always up for some sunken uh, cities and, and, and lost islands for sure. Um, uh, speaking of, uh, of underwater mysteries, and, uh, and and so forth. Some of you might be thinking, hey, Robert, you what, what happened about that show, Transgenesis, you were talking about? Oh, yeah. Uh, Didn't we we sci-fi. did a bunch of ocean stuff to get ready for that. Yeah. Well, the thing is, uh, the, the show uh, was and is ready to go, mm-hmm. but uh, we were asked to hold off on publishing it uh, for purely marketing reasons. <laughs> so, and I apologize for anyone um, uh, who encountered some confusion over that, uh, but uh, the show is still coming. I'm so excited to hear it, and you should be too. Keep yeah. an eye out. Uh, Also, if you want to listen to something else uh, besides Stuff to Blow Your Mind, check out Invention. That is the other show that Joe and I put together every week. It is a a journey through techno history. It's a look at the various inventions, big and small, elaborate and simple, uh, or seemingly simple, uh, or seemingly elaborate, depending (laughs) on uh, which one we're looking at. Uh, All these inventions that have changed the course of history and changed the, the shape of human experience. Definitely check it out. If you like this show, we think you'll like that show too. So go over to Invention, subscribe, check out our episodes. And in the meantime, head on over to StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That's the mothership. That's where you'll find all of Stuff to Blow Your Mind's episodes. You'll find links out to social media accounts. Hey, on Facebook, you'll find our group. It is uh, called the the Stuff to Blow Your Mind Discussion Module. It's a great place to talk about Stuff to Blow Your Mind episodes, invention episodes, ask us questions, uh, suggest episodes for the future. That's where all of that goes down. And again, rate and review wherever you have the chance to do so. Uh, That is the best way to support our shows. Big thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producers, Alex Williams and Tari Harrison. If you would like to get in touch with us directly with feedback about this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Oh, man, you know, Joe, I realized we closed out the episode and I never got back around to Bigfoot. <gasps> you monster. I know. Knowing what we know now about um, uh, about the, these, these mysterious sea circles and the culprit behind them, could uh, crop circles, could, could an alternative uh, explanation, could it have been that Bigfoot monsters, Sasquatches and their, their, their kin, were going out into fields and creating mating circles to draw in other um, uh, cryptids to mate with? Right there at the center of the of the crop circle. That's how you get those squatchacabras. Ah, yes. 
anyway, I'll leave everybody else out there to, uh, to, to, to think about and to visualize all of this. But I, I said I was going to bring it back to Big, Bigfoot later on in the episode. And I just wanted to make sure we close that out for you. If you're the person who makes the Sharknado movies, Squatchacabra comes next. <laughs> if you disappoint me, I'm going to shame you on this podcast to the end of time. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. The future of wireless is here, and it's transparent. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon. Just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. No hidden fees, no surprises, no, really. What are you waiting for? Get with the times and switch to Visible at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Rev up your thrills this summer at Cedar Point on the all-new Top Thrill 2. Drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch vertical speedway. And now, for a limited time, get more Cedar Point fun for less with our limited-time bundle for just $49.99. Get admission, parking, and all-day drinks for one low price. But you better hurry, because this bundle won't last long. Save now at cedarpoint.com. 